So as Phil said, we are wrapping up this series, and the series is called The Most Confounding Statements of Jesus. And as we've been examining, um, confounding is not a word we often use in regular vernacular, um, but Phil's been kindly defining it for us every week. Um, and so I'm just going to do that really quickly. Again, it's a, it's a word that means like confusing or astonishing. And these are statements that Jesus made that make you kind of go, what you talking about, Jesus? Um, and, and so a lot of these ones have been kind of like just weird things to say. This one's a little different. And, and as soon as I saw the teaching calendar and was kind of had my fair share of weeks that I could pick, I said, I want to pick that one because it's not weird because of what the statement is. It's weird because Jesus is the one saying it. Um, and we're going to, I'm actually just going to read, I'm going to dive right in and then we'll kind of do some, uh, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll kind of get into things. But I just wanted to read the passage. This can be found in Mark, uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, right near the end of the, of the book. And it's going to be verse 33 to 41. And I'll just, uh, I'll let the text speak for itself. It's going to be on your screen. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is that confounding statement. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to be here. I'm grateful for everyone who took the time to gather with us. Um, Not primarily because I get the opportunity to have the mic today, but because I believe that you're going to do something here that has the potential to change our lives. Or at the very least, change the way that we um, view you and, and view the world around us for a little while. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would use the things that I believe you've led me to say to affect change within our hearts um, and to, to lead us to see more accurately a picture of who you are. pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the key verse here is verse 34, and there's a lot of verses in here, and we'll talk about some of them. We're not going to, there's a lot in this passage, so we're not going to dive super in-depth on everything, but some of the verses we will. The key verse is verse 34, and this is, is where Jesus is saying, why have you abandoned me? But let's talk, the, the reason this is striking me is odd, and I've always thought this about this passage, is because we think of Jesus as being God. He actually says in another point, he says, if you've seen the Father, you've seen, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he equates himself with God. Um, so it's odd that Jesus would be separate from God in his own mind. 
Why have you abandoned me? And this word abandon, it, maybe you are familiar with an older translation that says, why have you forsaken me? It basically means, why have you rejected me? Why have you left me behind? Why have you left me hanging? Um, it's just odd coming from Jesus and directed at God because we think of them as the same. And so as I was, as I was doing word studies and thinking, of, okay, what does this word mean? I, I wanted to find kind of a concise sort of definition. And this is not a Webster's. I kind of made this up. But I think, it, I think it communicates what the word communicates. And so to be abandoned is to be severed, broken off from someone or something that we would cling to. And then, so like I'm an optimist. And so I don't think of myself as often feeling this way. And so when I picked this passage, I was a little, I was a little regretful at first. I was like, oh, I, have, I picked this one because it felt like the right one, and my gut was telling me to just go with it. And then I started to do the work, and I was like, I don't know if I feel this way ever. Um, because I think when we hear this word, we think of people in very, very extreme circumstances who have lost a parent or, or um, like, they lost a spouse, or something very, very close, and very, very extreme. But I don't think it has to take this form. And, and then I remembered a story from my childhood, and this was like a long time ago. This was like 20 years ago, and it's kind of crazy that I can say stuff like that now. Um, but so I was probably like seven or eight years old, and you know how kids, I don't know, is anybody here a parent? D- does anybody here have parents? Great. I am not a parent. Um, but I remember being a kid. And I remember how my dad would say things to me like, uh, well, why can't you, why can't you act as, as good at home as you, as you did out in public? Because kids are more authentically who they are with their parents. Is this your experience? Yeah. And so that's, the, that's kind of the, the context of the story. I, I, was a, I was a good kid outside of the house, um, more so than I was at home, and especially around my grandparents. My grandparents are um, very, very like strict people, and they have very specific ideas about what right and wrong is. And so, so we were we were hanging out. It was my parents, and it was my siblings, and my grandparents, and we were driving somewhere. I don't even remember where, but at a certain point, I did something. I don't remember what it was even, um, and what it did is it. It put me on the wrong side of my grandparents' beliefs about what's good and bad. And I had been working for a few years at building up this facade of, like, Jared is the perfect grandson, and he, he does only good things and not bad things. And I, I was like, I have my, my grandparents' approval and my grandparents' love because I'm a good boy. And, and then I did something that was counter to that narrative. And there was probably arguing and yelling and something. Because when we got home, I got out of the van. Because you can't get out of the van when it's driving. This is not a good idea. Don't recommend it. Just, yeah, don't do that. So what I did when we got home, the van stopped. I kicked open the door. Because I did that. Like, I would sit in the back. This is just fun. I'm remembering things. And, and there's like a button you can hit. And then you go like that. Because then you could feel cool. That wasn't in my talk, that, by the way. That's free. So I jumped out of the van, and I started running, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran for, like, four blocks, probably. And 
Not just like straight blocks, like zigzag, you gotta keep going, then go the other way, so you throw them off. Yeah, I didn't wanna be found. And I went to this, uh, this kid's house. I kinda sorta knew this kid, but not super well. But his friend, his, his neighbor guy had a boat, and so we kinda would, like every once in a while, we'd hang out in the boat, and it was a good hiding place. Because you could sit in the comfy seats, and then anytime there was a car coming by, you could duck down so that no one would see you. And so that's what I did. And I, I would see their cars driving by, looking for me. Jared, Jared, where are you? I'm right here, but I'm not going to tell you. And this was probably went on for a couple hours. But why do I tell this story? I wanted to control the narrative of how my grandparents saw me based on the way I conducted myself. And as soon as I lost control of that narrative, I felt as though I had lost that relationship. I felt as though I had broken that bond, that it was severed. And so I was living in fear, and so I ran. And it's not like, it's not a big deal. Like, it's like a kid, you know, like, run out. Oh, that's cute. Kid ran away. Probably went home eventually. I did actually go home. That, I'll tell that story later. Um, I did not stay in that boat for the next 20 years. But I think this, I think on a, on a small level, this can communicate this feeling of rejection, this feeling of abandonment, and what, what, um, where that comes from and, and, and what that represents. I think we can relate to this. Can you relate to this feeling? Whether it's like, um, whether it's uh, you feel abandonment from your parents, maybe, maybe they actually abandoned you, or maybe they were like sort of emotionally distant or whatever. Maybe, maybe your parents weren't perfect. My parents, of course, were perfect. Uh, maybe, maybe you've had a romantic relationship fizzle out and you felt rejected because you showed up. You didn't even play games. You showed up as who you actually are um, instead of like marketing yourself as your best ideal version of yourself. And then, and then things were going good and then something happened and you felt rejected because you actually were yourself. And it wasn't like a circumstantial thing. That person just was like, no, I don't, I'm not feeling you. This is, this is personal. It's not, it's not you, it's me, but actually it's you, because <laughs> it's always you. Let's be real. Um, or maybe, maybe it's a bigger deal. Maybe, you're, maybe you were married, and you have, and now you're not. Maybe you've been rejected by the most intimate person in your life. That can feel like abandonment, I suppose. What about kids? Some, some of you are parents. Have you ever had your kids say to you, I hate you? What did that feel like? I don't know what that felt. I don't know what that feels like. But I remember being the kid that said that. And I remember the look on my mom's face when I said that. It's not a good look. So whether we're people who follow Jesus or not, I think we can relate to this feeling that Jesus is experiencing here in chapter 15. He's feeling abandoned, 
by his father. I want to back up a few verses into the last chapter because this kind of gives us a window into Jesus' relationship with his father and also his relationship with some of his disciples, the people that he was very close to. If you, um, I don't know if this is in your program, but it's definitely going to be on the screen. This is Mark chapter 14, uh, 32 to 37. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. These guys are his like inner circle. These are his best friends. These are his boys. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Okay, Jesus. It's kind of a big statement. You'd think that after Jesus said that, they'd be like, oh, wow. We should listen to what he has to say next. He says, remain here and stay awake. Verse 35, he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour, the hour of his crucifixion. The hour of him being put on a piece of wood with nails stuck through his hand. We saw that video. That was a good video. I didn't know that video was going to be shown. But that is like, I was like, man, if that video was all we had today, that would be, that would be good. Because that's, that's the gospel. That's the message. That's the good news that, that we at, here at Clarity believe is for everyone. That's the hour that Mark is talking about. His hour was coming. And he said, Abba, Father. This is like a very affectionate statement. Daddy, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found his disciples, them, sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? And if you continue reading... He does this a few times. He goes away and he prays and then he comes back and they're sleeping. And he's like, come on. It happens three times. And then what happens after that? He gets arrested. He was betrayed by one of his, one of his guys. He gets arrested and then his disciples flee. They run away because they're like, oh no, we can't associate ourselves with Jesus. We thought he was a king. We thought he was going to save us and look at him now. He's abandoned by his disciples, the people, the human relationships that he counted as close. But he still has his relationship with his father. And he can rely on his relationship with his father. And he makes a conscious decision to move forward into the next thing. Until we get to chapter 15. Again, verse 34 in chapter 15, he says... Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now Jesus is alone. So, if God loves Jesus, and God loves all of us. You know, we hear all the time, God loves you. Why does God leave Jesus? Yeah. I wasn't expecting you to answer that question, but thank you. Totally fine. I paused way too long there. No, participation is good. This is awesome. Thank you. Yes. Well, here's why. And, and there's a lot of, like, context. And I'm a, I was a little nervous about how much, like, 
theological stuff is coming into this. So if I lose you somewhere, I promise I'm going to get back on track. Um, up until this point, God had been difficult to approach. Jesus was sent to, um, there was a nation, the Jews, and God had been working for thousands of years through this people group. And you can find all these stories in the Old Testament about that. It's, there's so much stuff in there. Um, but this is, this is the backdrop for what Jesus is doing. Jesus was born as a Jew. Jesus came as a Jew. He was part of this faith where you have a system of approaching God. And it's a very rigorous system. And there's laws, hundreds of laws. And there's a sacrificial system where every time you do something wrong, you've got to like, take an animal and you put it on an altar. And it's kind of weird for us today. Um, but it made sense in that culture. And there was a, there was a temple and it was the temple of God. And I have, a, I have a visual that kind of shows us what the temple looks like in Jesus' day. Do we have that? Do we have the picture? Yeah, there's the picture. Thank you, Shannon. Um, so the yellow part on the temple is the, is the building, as you can see. And that inside there, it represents the presence of God. And it's kind of sealed off because God is super holy. God is on his own. He's apart. He's, he's, he's unique. We can't comprehend who he is fully. He's inside, his, his, the representation of him is inside this, this temple. And then you have the red section, and this is the priest's court. So the priests were these people, they were like the officers of the religion, and they would go and they would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And, and they were like intermediaries, because the people, people can't handle being around God. They are, um, there's a separation because we're sinful people, because we're broken, and, and we can't just approach him. So we have these priests, and it was like super hardcore, because once a year, the, the guy would go inside the thing, and he'd make the sacrifice, and, and what they would, they would actually tie a rope around his leg in case, and like there's a bell, so like if he, if he died in there because he was like unclean, then they could just like pull him out without having to go inside. Like, this is a big deal. This is why it's, this is, it's hard to approach God. And then, you have, and then you have the blue one. And this is the court of Israel. So this is for Jewish men. Jewish men can get to that, like, second-tier level. They can approach God at that, at that second-tier level. And then we have the, the, the green. The green is for women. Women are second-class citizens in this culture. They can't get as close as the men can. And then on the outside, you have the court of the Gentiles. These are non-Jews. These are people who are separated from God even further. And so there's this hierarchy of how close you can be to God based on these circumstances of your birth. Um, and this is the backdrop for what, what the, the situation Jesus steps into. This is going to be important in the next verse because I think this blew my mind. It's a game changer. There's a curtain that separates the blue from the green, and it's a thick curtain, and it's really high, and it's intended to be a physical barrier that keeps the difference intact between Jews and between non-Jews, between men and between women. And if we look at verse 37, 38, Mark writes this, as soon as Jesus dies... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When I read this passage, I've read this passage so many times. I've always like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's weird, whatever. 
The cultural significance of this is huge because what it's saying is that this old way of coming to God where you had to go through these intermediaries and you had to make these sacrifices and you had to do it on a certain day and you had to follow all these rules, it's saying that that way is now no longer relevant. And then the next two verses are just like crazy. And they also seem kind of random on the surface. Verse 39 says, when the centurion, this is a Roman officer, this is a person who was overseeing the execution of Jesus. He's a Gentile. He's an enemy of Israel. He is part of the oppressive army that is ruling over them by force. This is not our friend. This is an enemy. He says, truly this man was the son of God. He recognizes who Jesus is. Why does Mark write this? Right after he talks about the tearing of the curtain. He's making a statement that says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You can come to God through Jesus. And then he goes on again. This also seems random on the surface, but it's so profound. Verse 40 and 41, it lists all these women. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were these, the list. And then 41, in Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. These people took care of Jesus when he was going around doing his ministry. And they followed him and they came with him. And they're mentioned specifically because now it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you can come to God through Jesus. This is why Jesus allowed himself to be abandoned by God because he wanted to make a way for everybody to come into a full relationship with his father. The same relationship that Jesus enjoyed, he wanted to give to all of us. He wanted to give to his people. He wanted to give to all people for all time, and he's invited everyone to experience that. The New Testament, which is the letters that were written after Jesus to various churches and individuals, uses a lot of this family language. And this was perfect. We sang that last song about not being a slave to fear and being a child of God, and I didn't know we were going to sing that song, so that's pretty cool. Um, Thanks for doing that, worship team. This is really, really good. Because here's the point. Jesus allowed himself to be abandoned by God so that we could be adopted by God. Jesus allowed himself to be abandoned by God so that we could be adopted by God. But that's not the end of the story. And I don't know how much you were thinking about this this week, Phil, or like leading up into the message prep. Like, I don't know if you were planning on having the crucifixion the week before Easter. Maybe you were, I don't know. But I think it just works out because, like Phil said, this Friday we are doing, uh, I don't know if you said that. You'll say it later. We are doing a good Friday gathering. Um, and we're going to be looking at, we're going to be remembering the crucifixion of Jesus. And then next week we're going to be talking about Easter. And Easter is the resurrection. This is when Jesus killed death. Jesus killed death so that we could have life. Jesus gave himself up to a violence in order to make peace. And he allowed himself to be abandoned, to have a broken relationship for a time so that we could have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father.
So how does this change the way we see God? I have some questions to consider, and I've been thinking about this. The first one goes like that. How, how do you allow human abandonment to influence the way you see God? So we've all, been, we've all felt rejection in some capacity, and I think it has a way of subconsciously influencing the way that we see God. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to my dad, actually. I mean, I've talked to my dad more than once. Um, but oftentimes he'll talk about how when, and I use this story with permission, so thank you for letting me share this. He talks about how his dad was like a World War II vet guy, and he was like very stoic and like worked hard, and I, I pay the bills so I don't have to be present when I'm at home. And, and he wasn't like an absentee father, but he also was like very kind of curmudgeonly, and he was like, he had rheumatoid arthritis, so he was like grouchy all the time, and just did not have time, and would often forget about him. And, uh, and that's influenced the way that he has seen God, because sometimes he has felt like God is that curmudgeonly father. How does, how does the rejection you felt in your life influence the way that you see God? That's something to consider. Because the gospel says that God is a perfect father who loves perfectly and unconditionally. You don't have to perform for him. I want to finish my story because I forgot to do that. Um, so I was hanging out in the boat, as we know. That's where we left off. And after a certain amount of time, I was like, you know what? I probably need to go home eventually anyways because I'm kind of hungry. And uh, so I, I did. And I'm, as I'm walking home really slow, in stark contrast to the running I had been doing earlier, I was thinking about how I was about to get yelled at and how I was going to get punished because of, like, of what I had done and also the fact that I just escalated it by running away and making them drive around looking for me. But that's not what happened. When I got home, my grandma, who was like the strictest one, the one that I did not want to cross at all, came and she's like, Jared! And then she gave me a big hug and then she's like, let's play basketball. And so we played horse. I didn't hear anything about it ever again. Because her love was not based on, a, on a, my ability to control my behavior or my very delicate image that I had been building. It was based on something more than that. It was based on a relationship. So, based on our restored relationship, if you follow Christ, you have a restored relationship with God. He's your perfect father. Do you ever try to prove yourself to God because you feel rejected by him. When we feel rejected by someone, sometimes I think we try to, we try to prove ourselves to that person, that we're worthy of what we think they ought to give us. Or we try to prove them wrong. That's more like me. Like, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. In what ways, where in your life are you trying to prove something to God? Another thing we can do is we can, we can in turn reject the person that has rejected us or that we perceive has rejected us. Like, uh, like, you know, you're about to get fired, so you're like, I hope you're not about to get fired. But you're about to get fired. So you say, well, you can't fire me, I quit. It's this, like, preemptive, I'm, you rejected me, so you're irrelevant to me. You don't matter because, because you really do, and I just want to say that you don't. In what ways are you deciding that God is irrelevant in your life? And then the last question is, how would my life change if I believed that I was a child of God who was loved unconditionally? If I really believed that, 
You know, we, we who follow Christ will say that we believe that, but do we always believe that? Every single moment of every single day? How would our life change if we believed that on a regular basis and we were reminded of that on a regular basis? Think about that. And if you don't know this God, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't experienced the fruit of this restored relationship, I want to invite you to give it a try. We're going to have prayer teams up here at the end. If you, if you feel like this is something that maybe you want to give a try, they'd love to talk to you. You can talk to me, you can talk to Phil, talk to somebody that you trust. Because it's a game changer. It makes a difference. Your life can be different. Yeah, I'm going to pray.